Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3 and various other frequencies which you'll find on our website fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, brings a bagful of good reads. With Downing Street, much in the news right now, we chat to the brilliant social historian and biographer, Anne de Corsi, about her latest, Margot at War, Love and Betrayal in Downing Street, 1912-1916. to Equally topical, with Oscar Pistorius' sentencing in two days' time, Vanessa Levenstein looks at the unanswered questions in Oscar versus the Truth by Thomas Mollett and Calvin Mollett. Ballet critic Sheila Chisholm keeps us on our tippy toes with Recollections of a Life in Dance by Cape Town-born International Spanish Dance Authority Dame Mavis Becker. While Beverly Ross Muller brings us back to us with Promise and Despair, the First Struggle for a Non-Racial South Africa by former BBC journalist Martin Plout. Philip Todras gives us a gorgeous glimpse into the first comprehensive history of fine art potteries in Scorched Earth, A Hundred Years of Southern African Potteries by Wendy Gers, where you'll see even some of Philip's original collection. Jay Heal links children to the unique sounds of Africa in The African Orchestra by Wendy Hartman and Joan Rankin. Peter Soule takes us to FIFA's financial fixings behind the 2010 World Cup in The Big Fix by Ray Hartley, editor of the Rand Daily Mail Online. Finally, and not for the faint-hearted, Cindy Moritz reviews the psychological crime thriller The Teacher by Katerina Diamond. Do stay tuned for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, a bag full of good Wordsworth books there. Hi, thanks, Gory. The Sunday Times Book Awards were announced just recently, and I really think somehow we don't follow the Sunday Times Book Awards in the quantities that people follow the bookers. And it's quite odd to me that uh, the awards that, that take place in this country don't generate the same sort of excitement that the, a Booker Award winner does or a Pulitzer Prize uh, winner does. But I just want to alert you to these two books that have both won. On the non-fiction side, which is the Alan Payton side, it's a book called Rape, A South African Nightmare. Very hard reading trenchant, really quite gut-wrenching, but very necessary for um, a country such as ours. And the other book is written by uh, someone who grew up in Natal in a very poor background, and how he pulled himself up and how he um, got himself out there in the thing. It's called Of Hunger Eats a Man. And this book is beautifully written. Um, it is a book that really could stand anywhere in the world. It is a book that I highly recommend. So that's Hunger Eats a Man and Rape, a South African Nightmare, the two winners of the Sunday Times Awards. My next book is called Under Devil's Peak by Gavin Cooper. And this is The Life and Times of Wilfred Cooper, an advocate in the age of apartheid. Now, Wilfred Cooper reached the peak of his considerable legal prowess 
at a time when South Africa led parallel existence. The majority downtrodden, while white entitlement reigned serenely in the suburbs. He and his gregarious wife, and I'm reading this from the cover here because it, it really gives you a great idea of what the book is about. Gertrude Cooper, I'm sure many people remember Gertrude from her uh, social column in the Cape Times. They had a very wonderful and sociable years in their Newlands home in Cape Town, an area that was itself remodeled under the Group Areas Act, and he chose to walk a path less taken in the shadow of Devil's Peak. He worked very considerably uh, in legal matters with uh, defending people captured under the apartheid regime. Right, so it's Gavin Cooper under Devil's Peak, and it is 260 Rand. Another South African book, and this is one slightly lighter feeling, but it's actually not lighter. It's called Is It Just Me or Is Everything Cuck? The Zuma Years by Tim Richman. Uh, the last book he wrote in this series was about seven, eight years ago, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, it, he has taken the Zuma years and he's gone into every scandal, every ghastly thing that's happened. And there's a lot of it. Things, chapters like load shedding. It's all over, they say. Announced by JZ in 2016. Never again, hallelujah. Everyone who spent 120000 on a backup power supplies will be particularly pleased. Why is it over? Because Madupi finally came online three years late. Because ESCOM finally got its act together. Not really. Low shedding is over because the state power utility has been so successful at convincing South Africans not to buy its product that uh, they're now producing less than they used to produce. And it's all sufficient for us. Well, this is just part of it. It's a really great book. It gives you all the facts, all the scandals, everything, everything is in here. The RAND, what's happened to the RAND, etc., etc. And it's a book that you can give away as a gift to your overseas people so they can just laugh gently when they see it. And it's 120 RAND. Is it just me or is everything cuck? The Zuma years. Right, Lionel Shriver has a new book. You know Lionel Shriver? She wrote that amazing book about Kevin. This is a book called The Mandibles, A Family, 2029 to 2047. And this book is about a family, it's about a country, America, who slowly goes bankrupt, how it goes bankrupt, and all the millions that were left in trust funds and investments accounts, etc., just go to dust, and how everyone copes with it. She is an absolutely brilliant author. This is a book that should be read by everyone. Uh, it's a book that I can highly recommend, very entertaining, but there's also, there is a very sharp edge to it. Lionel Shriver, The Mandibles, A Family, In God We Trusted. Right, and then the last thing, I've got a cookbook here called Eating, Lose Weight, Gain Health, Find Yourself. This is written by Mpo and Chikudu and Anna Trapido. Now, it's absolutely beautifully done, produced fantastically by Quivertree, and there's a recipe on every page with a fantastic photograph. Now, Quivertree, as you know, produce these amazing books. They absolutely look beautiful, but they're also extremely useful as well. It looks absolutely fantastic. I think this is a book that you can go through. You can get a recipe there because these are very unusual recipes. These are things that you don't find in normal cookbooks. And these are things that we can add to our tables and into our lifestyles and really enjoy. That is a fantastic book called Eating, Lose Weight, Gain Health, and Find Yourself. 
and it is 320 rand. Thanks very much. Cheers. And of course, we're going to chat about your latest, absolutely brilliant, adroit, vivid and deeply researched biography. It's called Margot at War, Love and Betrayal in Downing Street, 1912 to 1916. Downing Street being where the world's press is camped right now. There's a vast cast of characters in your book, the political, literary, the social, with Margot in a way central to it all. Tell us about Margot. She was absolutely central. And the reason I'd always wanted to write about her because she was a fascinating person who uh, really made herself. I mean, she wasn't a beauty. She didn't come from a particularly smart social background. Yet by the time she was 25, she was known as the fabulous Miss Tennant. That was her maiden name. And Oscar Wilde had dedicated a story to her. She had sat on Gladstone's knee, our great Prime Minister, who'd been Prime Minister four times, who also wrote a poem to her. She was at the heart of the souls, the sort of literary and cultural and aristocratic phenomenon of the late 90s, early 20th century. And she was known throughout London, really, and so well known that and people used to speculate about who she was going to marry because she had a sort of train of suitors. She was immensely chic without being a beauty. And she was so well known that when a rumour swept London that Arthur Balfour, who became Prime Minister, was about to marry her, he denied it with the words, no, I'm rather thinking of having a career of my own. And um, Anne, three days ago, which was July the 1st, was the centenary of the first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1914. Did the the politicians, the, the people, see that war coming? No. The extraordinary thing was that when the, nobody saw World War I, the Great War, coming, really until about ten days beforehand, quite different from the Second World War, which had a build-up of years, uh, they were all so focused on the situation in Ireland, which was aiming for home rule, because the North refused to leave Britain, uh, wanted to remain British, the South wanted a united Ireland, and it was an irresistible force meeting an immovable object. And everybody thought there was going to be a civil war in Ireland. That's what the whole focus was on. And indeed, Margot actually had a former ambassador to Berlin to lunch and the Archbishop of Canterbury at one luncheon party, I think it was eight or ten days beforehand, and when she told them she was sending for her sister to come back, she telegrammed her sister to come back from the continent because of the situation, they looked rather blank and said, why? And she was fairly well aware of what was going on, but most people certainly weren't. And then we were plunged, of course, into this most bloodthirsty war and the Battle of the Somme that you mentioned it was the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army with almost 60,000 casualties Yes and her sister was Laura? No, no I thought her sister was called Laura Oh yes Laura died very early she was inseparable from her sister Laura and Laura married and died really almost within 18 months with her first child and it was because Margot and her friends were grieving so much over Laura that only saw each other that that formed the nucleus of this band called the Souls, who were smart but very intellectual. I mean, a fav- favourite parlour game was 
write a sonnet in the style of Milton. And everybody there had to do that. And a lot of the men, of course, were classically educated and, and very good at that sort of thing, but the women had to do quite a lot of homework. <laughs> and then, Anne, do we call it the unhappy threesome in 10 Downing Street in the Asquith's days? Oh, well, Downing Street was an absolute riptide of emotion at that time, because in 1912, just before the war, Prime Minister had fallen in love with his daughter's best friend. She was a girl of 25, he was 60. The best friend was in a kind of relationship that once would have been called unhealthy with the Prime Minister's daughter, Violet. The senior private secretary was in love with Violet. The junior private secretary was also in love with this girl, Venetia. Margot found out and felt miserably jealous. And the Prime Minister's daughter was crazy about her father. No other man came up to him. So it was an extraordinary maelstrom of emotion. And that is not even to mention what Lloyd George was up to next I was just going to say, daring do's at at 11 Downing Street, too. Yes, Yes. so it was an extraordinary situation, but not a word leaked out to the general public. That was what was so extraordinary then. Although Asquith used to write to this girl... In his cabinet meetings. Mm. He would write her these letters. A messenger would bring in a letter on a salver, because there were 12 posts a day at that time, and he would once he saw her writing, he would immediately lose interest in what was going on. He would open the letter, he would read it with the closest possible attention, he would write an answer, seal it up, send for the messenger, put it out, and then, only then, would he turn his attention to the matters of the day, while in France, young men were dying like flies. We were talking to Anne de Courcy about her unputdownable, as they say, new biography. I think, Anne, this is your 12th or 13th yes. book. <laughs> yes. It's called Margot at War, Love and Betrayal in Downing Street, 1912 to 1916. Vanessa Levenstein, sentencing for Oscar Pistorius in two days' time. Did Oscar know that Reva Steenkamp was behind the closed door? The question that has been thrashed about in the media and in courtrooms over the last three years. Brothers Thomas and Calvin Mollett are amateur forensic investigators. Following their research on the Ingerlots murder, the brothers have painstakingly pieced together their theory, based on photographs and court evidence, in their latest book, Oscar vs. the Truth. From the title, one can gather what they believe happened on that fatal night. Their work, and for that matter, this book, is not for the faint-hearted. While the recently released pictures of the deceased Reaver obviously don't appear in this edition, the A4 208-page book does contain disturbing images and illuminating but distressing material. While their writing style is at times clumsy, it doesn't deter from the content, which poses thought-provoking questions. For example, why, on a hot night, was Reaver sleeping in the vest she had arrived in, which was presumably sweaty, and thick cotton men's shorts? Did Oscar dress Reaver after she was killed? Was the cricket bat used in an altercation? What caused the wound on Reaver's back? The brothers systematically deconstruct every angle, blood splatter, sound and bullet wound. We have witnessed highly charged emotion around this case, understandably so. Whether you agree or disagree with the Mollett brothers' theory, or even question their expertise and objectivity, their concluding words resonate. Victims of crime deserve more than emotional arguments and side-pickings. They deserve the truth. Whether Oscar versus the truth 
does indeed reveal the truth is a question that only two people could answer, and one of them has been tragically silenced forever. Sheila Chisholm, Spanish notes in Mavis Becker's Recollections of a Life in Dance. Dame Mavis Becker believes that to gain equal rights, every responsible South African needs to personally take up the fight against racialism. However, to Dame Mavis, racialism is not just about pigmentation. It refers to all areas where one member of a society is looked down upon by another, regardless whether it be through religion, wealth, looks or family heritage. To this end, Dame Mavis has devoted her life to using her knowledge of Spanish dance and flamenco in particular to bring about a more equitable society. As flamenco dates back to 1478, when minority groups fled cities to escape the Spanish Inquisition, it held and holds special appeal to our society where large numbers of our population were suffering state persecution. Where Mavis succeeded in breaking down barriers lay in her ability to teach. It's not what you are or who you are. If you give your all, you are special and will win through. Dame Mavis's recently published Recollections of a Life in Dance isn't just her life story from childhood, passing through her dancing and teaching careers. It's very much needed additional reading matter to the limited number of books covering dance in South Africa. A Researcher's Dream, written in a handy-sized booklet, Recollections of a Life in Dance also bears the distinction of being the first to trace the history and growth of Spanish dance in South Africa, as well as Dame Mavis's modest acknowledgement of her influence, furthering and fostering this art in other countries. To her mother, Ina, Dame Mavis gives credit for encouraging her and her sister, Rita, to study classical ballet, tap, and under Elizabeth Coombe's tutelage, classic Greek and Spanish dance. Throughout her reflections, Dame Mavis punctuates her book with names of teachers long forgotten and sadly unknown by today's younger dancers. Yet, without them, dance in all forms wouldn't be the vibrant art it is now throughout South Africa. Learning about these teachers and their place in our history makes recollections of life and dance additionally important reading. Recollections of a life in dance recalls Dame Mavis's extraordinary dancing career under her stage name Marina Lorca, the Spanish dance greats she danced alongside, the founding and touring with Danza Lorca, her own Spanish dance company, a company which nurtured numerous flamenco dancers and teachers. She highlights, alas, without discussing in depth the work she choreographed and danced during her dancing and teaching career abroad and at UCT School of Dance. Perhaps her most lasting triumph has been co-founding with Mercedes Modena, Dame Marina Keek de Groot, Diana Blacher, Gentanella and Rhoda Vincent, the Spanish dance society known as SDS. Under that banner, they pioneered syllabi for scholars and teachers. Sir Geoffrey Neiman adapted that work to produce male sections for the syllabus. These syllabi are now taught and examined in many parts of the world, Spain included. In her role as a Spanish dance society examiner, Dame Mavis continues working, simultaneously spreading her influence and knowledge. Dame Mavis specially credits her husband Rodney Mazinta and children Louisa and Jonathan for freedom to give her full expression to her art. Without their support and faith in me, 
I couldn't have done what I did. Not surprisingly, in June 2000, King Juan Carlos bestowed on her the title of Dame or Dama when he awarded La Cruz de la Orden de Isabel la Catolica for her lifetime contribution to Spanish culture. Written in easily understood language, edited by Lisa Wilson, from Dame Mavis's extensive personal photographic album, Wendy Lloyd has artistically laid out her illustrious dancing life in captioned photographs. Published in 2015, Recollections of a Life in Dance is a must-read for every dance lover. The information therein is historically invaluable. It's published by University of Cape Town School of Dance. The price is 200 rand. And contact email is said, that's S-A-I-D, at U-C-T dot A-C dot Z-A. Ah, oh, interesting that was. Uh, Beverly Rosemuller. A good look at the efforts to create a non-racial South Africa all that time ago. It's good to see that the role of women in history is being taken more seriously. Once upon a time, it seemed that no women ever existed outside their homes, or if they did, they tended to meet a sticky end, rather like Joan of Arc. In a less than sunny but nevertheless important look at the formation of South Africa through the Act of Union in 1910, author and former BBC journalist Martin Plout not only records the desperate efforts to create a non-racial country at the time, think of all the trouble that would have saved, but also gives full praise to the brave women who took part. It's sobering to remember that, and I quote, all and every rights, privileges, and benefits of the law to which any other of His Majesty's subjects are entitled be offered to every single male who qualified, regardless of colour, was enshrined when the Cape Colony was granted representative government in 1853. Men, such as Dr. Abdullah Abdurrahman, sat on the Cape Town City Council for 40 years. So what went wrong? At the heart of it lay different and opposing understandings of what the British Empire actually meant. And Plout warns in his book, Promise and Despair, The First Struggle for a Non-Racial South Africa, that it is a complex story with no glib answers. This book concentrates particularly on converging journeys to London in 1909 after the bitter Boer War was over to form the Union of South Africa. Britain was rejoicing in the newfound friendship with General Louis Boerter and his brilliant right-hand man, Jan Smuts, both former foes whom the British public now considered heroes. The Union was offered to them for a simple and urgent reason, the certainty that war loomed with the Empire's real enemy, Germany. This, of course, was proved to be correct. Former Prime Minister of the Cape, Will Schreiner, brother of Olive, also travelled to Britain in 1909 with a delegation of distinguished black leaders to fight for their rights. They did not succeed. For expedient reasons, union was already a done deal. Also present in 1909 was Mohandas Gandhi, setting up networks and figuring out how power functioned in imperial circles, information which would benefit him enormously when he returned to India's own struggle for independence. Plot's book widely recognizes the woman who played significant roles in this era's struggle for non-racial rights in South Africa. We know of Olive Schreiner's robust views. 
Also the valuable lobbying of Betty Maltino, daughter of the former governor of the Cape, has come to light through her letters to her lover, Alice Green. There were British women, too, who took up the non-racial struggle. Emily Hobhouse, of course, Lady Violet Cecil, whose flaming affair with Lord Milner later turned into marriage, and Helen Clark. I asked Clark whether he thought these well-connected women were able to sympathize because of their own struggle for emancipation. Yes, he responded, they were also bound under the injustice of their own lack of franchise. Most of them had been pro-boy during the war. Only when the realization dawned that the act of union had also become an act of separation for black South Africans did general attitudes begin to slowly change. Promises and Despair is rich in detail. Though not a cheerful read, as its title suggests, it is a valuable contribution to our understanding just how extremely complex South Africa history is and what unexpected consequences flowed from decisions that were taken for expedient rather than ethical reasons, a lesson that we would do well to remember. Philip Todra's nice earthy colours there. It's called Scorched Earth, A Hundred Years of Southern African Potteries by Wendy Gers. Well, what's not to like with a title like that, Scorched Earth? It sort of amazes me that nobody else has thought of a title like that for the field of ceramics. But then Wendy Gers is a very accomplished art historian, and this is her field. And it really comes through in this really magnificent term, and that's the only way to describe it. It's full of wonderful information. It contextualizes the subject magnificently in a few pages she summarizes the history of the ceramic industry and lots of interesting things that came up to me that even as early as Jan van Ribbeck's times there's a need for local ceramics and the disasters with the clay and trying to get it analyzed back in in Holland and sending through potters from Holland and so the ceramic industry really did start way back then and then also I have an association with Montebello Design Center and originally Cecil Michaelis straight after the war wanted to start a ceramics factory there and that's why I was so keen that design should become part of that particular area and he did make some pottery there and shipped it off to England but it was so brittle that it smashed and all that arrived there was smithereens so yes there is a whole history of South African ceramics and what I think is important and what Wendy focuses on, and I'm just going to read from what her aims are, that art and production pottery has been historically stigmatized with various negative associations as a result of modernist cadence of high and low art. Art historians have only relatively recently become aware of the centrality of these monolithic modernist canons and begun challenging them. This book is a revisionist project that challenges modern art canons in Southern Africa. It is rooted in a long-term commitment to enlarging understanding of modern Southern African artistic production and design. And I say bravo, Wendy, because that really is, that breakdown between art and craft I think is very important to me. I think it's been done years ago, and in fact one of the centers of ceramics is at Peter Maritzburg, and the Tatum Art Gallery there had certainly done that breakdown, I must say the South African National Gallery here does that very often. And what is interesting is that you're not looking at the individual piece, it is production ware. But you have a look at that wonderful cover picture of Kalahari ware, and you, you know, one just 
immediately associates with these wonderful works which are very quintessentially South African and some of the very important potteries that she does cover. I mean, there are many that I haven't heard of because they're also tile industry has been making ceramics for many years. So you have something like the Conrad Transvaal pottery. and But yes, there are certain ones that you do know. And for instance, the whole thing, the Zalberg pottery work that was here in Paro. Um, the ones, of course, that I'm most interested in is something like Rorksdrift Center out in KwaZulu-Natal. And something that I've had an association with since the early 70s. And I must say, a little feather in my hat, it's nice to see that some of the illustrations are works that were originally in my collection which ultimately went to the South African National Gallery. So it's been a very interesting read for me and sort of going through it in great detail. But also what I have found very, very encouraging is that each of the potteries that she discusses, she's gone to great length of detail to find out the names of the people that worked there. And for me it's not only a matter of respecting our history, but respecting the people that were involved in the growth of this very, very important industry, which has a whole history, a pre-colonial history as well, which he also refers to. So I can highly, highly recommend, if you're interested in a book that is a really excellent reference work to Southern African potteries, you've got to get it. It's Scorched Earth, it's Wendy Gers, and even her acknowledgement is a who's who of South African potters. Jay Heal, The Sounds of Africa. And some strange ones too. About a month ago, two visitors from England were staying with a friend of mine in Stanford. And in the early evening, a sound came from outside. Is that a hyena? asked one in a tremulous voice. No, said my friend, it is a duck. <laughs> but that, in the year 2016, is still what many people around the world think of South Africa. And that's why I wish to call your attention to a new picture book that avoids what I call picture postcard Africa. There isn't an elephant or lion in sight, and not even a hyena. The African Orchestra is by Wendy Hartman and Joan Rankin and published by Jakana. To be pedantic, Wendy wrote the words, Joan did the artwork. To be accurate, they teamed up, as usual, and created this glorious singing picture book together. It's not a story, it's a celebration of African sound makers, an intriguing mixture from small things to universal ones. Chicadas, crickets, beetles and frogs, seed pods, cocoons, hollowed out logs, crackling fires, the patter of rain, thundering hooves on the African plain. I love the details. I love the warm colors of Africa. I love the ancient quality of sounds suggested. Here are seed pod rattles, the click of fingers, river reed flute, lute, drums and singers. This is a book to be shared out loud, with eager listeners clamoring to examine every illustration again and again. You can hear the pictures. It's genuine and indigenous, and in my opinion, the African Orchestra is a new classic a publishing milestone, a proud and shining light for South African children's literature to show off to the world. 
which gives me an opportunity to explain what I think makes a good children's book. It does not have to be bright and flashy and cute and cuddly. It does have to be about something. It has to have a text worth reading aloud and pictures worth exploring several times. It must have depth, layers beneath layers. I'm no authority on children's literature. The only true authorities are the children. If they like a book and want it more than once, then it is providing something they need. It doesn't have to be simple. Young people understand awe and wonder without needing to read it in words of one syllable. The African Orchestra is a book which contains such wonder. Long may it last. In the beginning, when all things began, these were the sounds which were music to man. Oh, I rather wish we'd asked Jay to make some of those sounds. Peter Soule, uh, a sobering take on FIFA and the 2010 World Cup. The Big Fix by Ray Hartley is published by Jonathan Ball. Ray Hartley is the editor of Ront Daily Mail, an online newspaper that publishes opinion, analysis and commentary. He is a former editor of the Sunday Times. In June 2010, the richest World Cup ever kicked off as ecstatic fans gathered in a rare act of national unity to make the world's biggest sporting event a success. The magnificent new stadiums were packed with local and international fans who reveled in the excitement and magic of what is known as the beautiful game. We were all on our best behavior, the streets were safe, and the local organizing committee, together with officials from FIFA, ensured the program worked like clockwork. Behind this facade of excellent organizational symmetry lay a tale of billions in wasted public money crooked companies rigging construction tenders and the fixing of a string of matches involving Bafana Bafana, our national team. Hartley sets out in some considerable detail how Blatter engineered the appointment of South Africa as the host country for the 2010 competition, including how a bribe of 10,000 US dollars was paid to ensure Caribbean votes in our favour. Blatter had intended South Africa be awarded the 26th World Cup, but his machinations went wrong when Germany won the bid. There was to be no mistake for the 2010 decision, and Blatter did his work this time with precision. The impression was given that we had won the bid on merit, even weeding out Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu to canvass some doubtful votes. However, it was the bank transfer that clinched the deal. In spite of being awarded the cup on the basis of using existing stadiums, Blatter and FIFA put pressure on the South Africans to build extravagant new palaces. The escalation in the cost of building these stadiums was not only as a result of FIFA's pressure to produce jewels for the event, but it was subsequently revealed that construction companies had colluded on bidding and had rigged the prices of the stadiums. Details of the clandestine negotiations are revealed in the book, including the fine imposed by the Competition Commission. This is followed by particulars of how the warm-up friendly games were rigged by appointing supple referees and assistants who would ensure the desired outcome. 
At the end of the World Cup, FIFA officials departed our shores with millions of dollars having been skimmed off the local profits. All was not well at FIFA and at their headquarters, and events began to spin out of control with investigations resulting in Sepp Blatter and his assistant Jerome Falk being banned from football. This is a 200-page short record of the circumstances surrounding the hosting of the 2010 World Cup, which Ray Hartley hopes will clarify what occurred. It is well worth a read. Cindy Moritz, you survived a scary psychological crime read. I must admit that The Teacher is not my usual choice of read, it being a psychological crime thriller described as not for the faint-hearted. I'm part of a few Facebook book clubs where members recommend and review their latest reads, and it was in one of these forums that The Teacher came up. The group is predominantly made up of UK readers, and my guess is that psychological crime thrillers are their thing. My interest was piqued, so I gave it a bash. In Chapter 1, the body of the principal of an exclusive Devon school is discovered hanging from the rafters of the assembly hall. He anticipated his own demise when he received a mystery package just minutes before in his office and proceeded like a lamb to the slaughter to meet his end. That, we would guess, is the teacher of the title. However, all is not what it seems, and that, as they say, is not all. Ensuing chapters reveal a host of other interesting characters, some of whom also meet a grisly end in Exeter, a city unused to such heinous crime. Police duo Imogen Gray and Adrian Miles, themselves disgraced but given a second chance, must get to the bottom of who is responsible for the multiple deaths, if indeed it is just one person. What motivates that killer and how can he or she be stopped? Can such gruesome murder ever be justified? The author keeps up the suspense until the last page. But here I have to stress that this novel is not only not for the faint-hearted, it contains a series of seriously unpleasant and disturbing descriptions, many of which I would rather have not read. I do understand that for some people this is their genre, but I soon realized why it's not mine. Anyway, the story held my interest between the grisly details. Characters were well-developed, and I did care what would happen next. Pivotal to the narrative are two museum workers, introverted taxidermist Abby and the PhD student writing a thesis on prehistoric preservation, Parker. The two strike up a relationship, and both of their stories unravel to reveal past injustices, mistakes, and attempts to rectify them. The author labels chapters with brief, broad descriptions of who are the subjects and sometimes takes the reader to the past with a then added to the heading. In this way, we learn backstories. But if you aren't a fast reader, it may mean refreshing your memory often, as there are many stories told throughout in different time frames. More cannot be divulged without giving away the element of surprise, so I'll quote the blurb on the book's back cover. You think you know who to trust? You think you know the difference between good and evil? You're wrong. Phew. Debut author Katerina Diamond has a strong following among fans of the genre. She has put out a pacey, thrilling crime story that will have readers turning pages into the early hours. 
I am not, however, one of those readers. I'm glad I gave it a try, as how else does one know? But I'm of the opinion that we get enough of the gore by turning on the never-ending world news reports. And it's not a place to which I like to escape. Rather, it's a place from which I would like to run. So, if you have a strong constitution for graphic crime detail, this is one for you. I'll put it down to experience and move on to less disturbing stuff. And that's it then. In Book Choice next month, we'll tell you all you need to know about the upcoming Open Book Festival. From Mawandi Lobi, production engineer. From Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music and skillfully kept the show on the road. And from me, Gory Bose-Taylor. It's Keep Warm, Curl Up with a Cute Author. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.